0: Live from Los Angeles, this is Rabbi Eric Sherman and Rabbi on the Sidelines. This week, we are joined by Steve Springer, Los Angeles Laker historian, author of 14 books within the sports world, member of the Jewish Sports Hall of Fame of Southern California, LA Times journalist, and if you're looking for a Kohane, he's the resident Kohane in Southern California. Steve, it's so good to see you. Good Thanks to see you,
1: Eric. I'm doing good. How, how are you?
0: I'm great. I'm great. I've been looking forward to this day, probably since the day I met you uh, 12 years ago when I moved out west to Shomrei Torah Synagogue. A shout out to our Shomrei Torah family. Um, And we talk sports all the time, but most importantly, we actually met in shul. We met in the synagogue. So before we get to the sports world and Magic and Kareem and LeBron and Kobe, let's talk about synagogue. Let's talk about Jewish life. What was your road to your activity within synagogue ritual and Jewish community? How did that love come about?
1: <laughs> well, I, I had a, a, a great uh, uh, people that formed me who kind of blazed the trail. My my grandfather um, came over from Eastern Europe, like like so many others, and um, he never even had an English name his whole life. He was he only went by his Hebrew name, which was Oishu Zelig, which is my Hebrew name now. And my father um, was Orthodox, as was um, as far back as it goes in, in Poland, I think. Uh, and um, he, he he took he obviously took me to shul every every holiday every Shabbos um, when I was growing up. He laying Torah for the teenage uh, teenagers in in a separate chapel at our synagogue congregation Judea in West Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And um, and I so I grew up in an orthodox home. It's not surprising that I follow that I followed the faith and continue to follow it.
0: So then let's look at the other side, which is sports. You become a member of the Los Angeles Sports Hall of Fame, but through the journalistic way. When did you realize that you could actually take this road in sports? You know, there's a wonderful book by Dr. Jeffrey Gurak about American Jews encountering the world of sports. You spoke about your parents, grandparents being immigrants to this country. What did they know about sports and how did you learn about American sports?
1: My parents didn't know a lot about sports, although my father uh, took me to my first ball game in uh – at the Coliseum when the Dodgers were playing there. And, uh, you know, I used to tell people, you know, I'd never been to a game. I'd never seen a lot of people in one place. And so um, when I went to the game, I always told people, yeah, I went to the Coliseum and there were 100,000 people there. I'd never seen anything like it. But then when I grew up and I got in the business, I found a a, a website that where you can get the box score of every major league game ever played. And Mm -hmm. so I knew knew it was a, a Thursday in 1958. And uh, at the Coliseum, Dodgers and the Cincinnati Reds, I found it. And I, at the bottom of every box score, as you know, eras, is the, the attendance. So this huge crowd I'd never seen before, it was a day game. It was actually 13,000 people. So to, me, <laughs> to me, that was 100,000. But, um, but I had a conversation, I remember, with, with, my, with my mother. And I said, because I was fascinated by Vince Scully. So I asked my mother, what is Vince Scully? do for a living? And she says, he does the Dodger games. I said, I I know, I know. But like dad sells clothes. Well, what did did he do? She says, that's what he did. He did the Dodger games. And I said, I was just a kid. I said, he gets paid to go to games. And she says, yeah, I couldn't believe that. I said, that's what I'm going to do when I grow up. I'm going to get paid to go to games. Somebody would pay you to do this? I couldn't believe it as a kid. So that was, that was right then and there. I decided my, my, my path in life and and I followed it.
0: So you followed it? Took a little detour. Start with yeah. the beginning about your father-in-law and how you really got into journalism.
1: So I, I had never written a word other than than college uh, essays and and stuff like that in, in school and college, obviously. But um, but I majored in broadcasting because again I wanted to be Ben Scully and and uh, I, I did all the uh, football, baseball, and basketball games at then Valley State with. With Steve Talbot, a fellow a broadcaster. Then I got out into the world and I got a job. I was working, I worked for the Dodgers in PR while I was still in school. And then uh, when I got out, I got my first job in Calexico, California, which is right on the border, doing high school football games on, on radio. Then I moved to, uh, uh, my wife Annette and I moved to uh, India and I did the uh, Indio High School Rajahs football games. Mm-hmm. And But I began to see that I wasn't going to be the next Ben Scully. So at some point I realized we had a baby on the way um, and I dropped everything. I I enrolled in law school and I went to work with my father-in-law in construction, which as you, as you, as you know me, that's not exactly me. And then, um, uh, Annette's uh, grandfather uh, on, her, on the paternal side uh, passed away and we went to the funeral and he was a wonderful person. And he, he always, he always was, was helping people. His whole goal in life was to help people. And so he passed away and we went to the funeral. And then as with every uh, Shiva scene, we went to, to a relative's house and there was, there was a big uh, platter, deli platter on the, on the dining room table and people were coming and going. And Annette's, um, One of her uncles, um, Marvin Sosna, was the editor of the Thousand Oaks News Chronicle. Mm -hmm. And again, I'd never written anything. So um, if I'd gone up to that table to get a a, a corned beef sandwich a half hour, five minutes earlier or five minutes later, I'd probably be a lawyer now and you wouldn't be talking to me. But I went up there. He was standing there and just past conversation. I said, so, Mark, when are you going to hire me for your newspaper? And he says, well, you know, it's a funny thing you say that one of my sports guys quit this morning. On my way over here, I found out, and I have to have somebody within the next 48 hours. But you've never done this before. I said, I know, but I, 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 re- I really think I could do it. He says, besides, you have a baby on the way. and Annette was seven months pregnant with Dina, my daughter. And uh, But Annette being Annette and being a wonderful wife, I said, so what do you think? She said, if it'll make you happy, do it. It was totally irrational. And now I look back, what are you doing? You're quitting everything to... To, to jump into a field you've never you know nothing about but I, t- I took a, I took a risk and um, I was at the News Chronicle for five years learned the trade and then moved on to the Orange County Register where I started covering the Lakers and then from there I was hired by the Times so it was the- <laughs> Orange County yeah, yeah, the LA Times. Yeah, yeah. right now no, nobody starts at the LA Times right, at least right, not, right not in those days and
0: then what was <laughs> that take us back to that first Laker game that you realize you now have a front seat to the Los Angeles Lakers and not only a front seat, but you have the responsibility to tell their story to the world.
1: Well, not, not only did I, I just, cause I was a Laker fan growing up like, like so many others, but um, the, the timing, I, just as the timing was perfect uh, for me to just come up to that table to get my sandwich, the timing was perfect to cover the Lakers because um, Jerry Buss had just bought the team. Magic Johnson was a rookie just starting out. It was all beginning. Showtime was beginning, and I was there from the inception. So timing again couldn't have been better.
0: So take us to Showtime. <laughs> Showtime. What was Showtime. Showtime? How did it come that about? Was, yeah. You have a very, you had a very close relationship with Jerry Buss. Um, when did you realize that this was something that was really special, not just for the L.A. community, but in fact, the entire world?
1: Well, Jer- Jerry Buss um, used to go to a, a nightclub, um, in Santa Monica. And they would, it was, um, they would start the evenings at they had entertainment and they would start the evening with, uh, four singers coming from all four s- uh, sides of the, uh, of the, uh, place they were doing the entertaining, the, uh, the, um, and they would each one would say it's showtime, it's showtime, all mm-hmm. four of them. And that kind of stuck with, with bus and, and bus, um, he, he understood, um, Finances, of course, but he also understood entertainment, and he didn't just want a basketball team; he wanted an entertaining team because this was Hollywood, and he was going to bring in all the the celebrities to, to and the front 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 row and in the courtside seats. And so he um, he came up with this idea. Of this is what he wanted his team to be, and he hired Jack McKinney, who designed. Jack McKinney is an amazing story. He was a very good coach before he came to the Lakers. He only coached them for 14 games during that mm-hmm. time. He invented – he designed the uh, their offense, which Jerry Bus named Showtime after that uh, the nightclub he used to go to. And then he had a, a tragic uh, bicycle accident, which left him with, with serious uh, de- brain damage. He recovered enough to come back and coach other teams, but he never coached the Lakers again. And what I, what I always found amazing was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar one time was asked, who are your two favorite uh, – coaches or best coaches over the years. And he picked uh, John Wooden, who, he, who was his coach yeah. in college. And he picked Jack McKinney, who coached him for 14 games. But uh, Kareem understood that in those 14 games, he created this this uh, blueprint for Showtime, which lasted for, for more than a decade.
0: So what was that, so what that, was that like, like from Kareem to Magic? Take us to the draft of Magic. Actually, take us to Magic at Michigan State. You've uh, spoken to me a lot about him over the years. And let's go back to Magic in high school. He goes to Everett High School, where basically the school was beginning to be integrated black and white. What was Magic Johnson's role in high school? And what did he learn at Everett High that taught him that he could be an impetus for change in society, in the greater society, um, when he became a Laker?
1: Well, let's go back a little further. When Magic was just a little kid, um, he went to a Pistons game, and Kareem was then playing for for, for, for the Milwaukee Bucks. And um, Ir- Irvin slept. I'm sorry. I call him Irvin because yep. when you know him, that's his name. But you don't call him by – anybody who knows him doesn't call him Magic, but we'll call him Magic for, for the sake of the show. Um, so uh, little Irvin snuck into the locker room and got an autograph from Kareem. And now to him at that moment, that was the highlight of his life. He couldn't imagine it would ever get better than that. So now he goes to uh, to high school, and um, there there was a lot of there was there were busing issues going on, and there was a lot of tension in that school between African Americans and the and the white community. So the principal Irvin was probably sixteen seventeen. Uh, the principal calls him in, and he calls in the the star quarterback for the team, who was white, and he says, "You two have got. I want you two to bridge the gap between black and white. I want you guys." Each dealing with your own with your own followers, your own crowd. I want you to see if you can bring if you can get release some of the tension and get these two sides together to to live and play and work together. And and Magic later told me he says I'm 16 years old and all of a sudden I'm, I'm going to be the peacemaker. But but that was his first experience with trying to deal with racism. Um, and it had nothing to do with sports, obviously. But he was the star basketball player. He was going to work with a star football player who was white and. And that, and he's done that all his life.
0: And one of those (laughs) times that he's done is magic and bird. If you haven't watched the movie Magic and Bird Courtship of Rivals with Steve, you really uh, are a large part of that story. It tells the story of Boston, Los Angeles, East and West, black and white. Two players that couldn't be any different but at the end of the day, end up being the best of friends to make some difference in our society. Maybe take us a little through that relationship, how they, I mean, Bird would not even speak to magic, right, when he would see him on the court. But then that moment, I believe, when they uh, filmed the commercial uh, in Indiana, all of a sudden they realize, actually, no, we are human beings and we have stories to tell.
1: Well, you know, it's, it's kind of funny when, when, you, when you look at it because – Neither neither Magic nor Bird had anything to do with the cities they played in growing up. Mm-hmm. They're both Midwest guys. Um, Larry's uh, Indianapolis, Irvin, uh, Michigan, and so now they're 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 drafted and they go to Boston and and Los Angeles. But just imagine, and which hasn't they don't have anything to do with those cities until they get there. Just imagine. Let, let's flip it a minute. Let's say Bird goes to L.A. And let's say uh, Magic goes to Boston. Now Magic is depicted because uh, he was a great rebounder, this tough blue-collar guy out there banging people around, showing showing all the muscle. And Larry playing in L.A. with the blonde hair would have been Larry the Surfer. I mean, it, it just it's so funny how they're attached to cities, just and everything. Instead, Magic's Tinseltown, and Larry's the the hard-nosed fighter. Um, but you're right, they they didn't. Well, Berg never got over the fact that that Magic beat him in the N.C. two A championship game right. between the in, Indiana State and uh, and Michigan, and of course Michigan State. And of course, um, it's the highest rated to this day. It's the highest rated basketball uh, game of all time, at, uh, college or pro. And so that's that's how it began. Larry Larry was still he just wanted to get back at at Irvin in the pros. Um, and then you're right. They had the, the commercial and, and it was actually it was actually Larry's mother when they had a break in, in the filming who invited Ir- Irvin in for lunch. And and after that, they did. They became the best of friends and uh, and the best of players, but also the best of friends. So you travel yeah. all over the United States and the Lakers, specifically Showtime.
0: There was no social media where a player would tweet and we would know what's happening on the airplane what are some of the moments let's say of faith, right. That brought this showtime team together that we didn't read about in the newspaper during those times. But today we would have seen on Twitter and Instagram or Facebook. What were you seeing behind the scenes that was really making this team be a community?
1: Well, the, what they would do in the days before now they all, they have charters and they're all, you know, it's just the players and there there's a big gap between the players and the media and the players and the public back then. What the Lakers would do, they would buy out first class on, on on our flight and seal it off. So we had like our own little living room away away from all the riffraff. And it was just us. Yeah. And so it was a chance to bond. We'd all go out. I mean, we go out to dinner together, all of us players, uh, writers. There was there wasn't that barrier. And we got to know them. They got to know us. And um you know, it was like traveling with a rock band. I mean, with all the women around and all the crazy stuff that went on, but still, we had a bond um, that they don't have nowadays. And I talked, I talked to the guys who who cover beats nowadays, and they and they agree. There's just it's all regimented. There's a 45 minute period before the game you can go in the locker room. It's you can't you can't approach them here or there. I mean, we stayed in the same hotels, flew on the same planes. we were all once we got on the road, we were all just a traveling party together, and it's so different now.
0: And now that you and even in the good times, maybe take us to that moment when Magic Johnson found out that he had HIV, and I believe, uh, right, you were at that press conference. And what did that moment look like for Magic Johnson as a human being, realizing that his life was about to change?
1: Well, you know, at the time, you know, AIDS was still relatively new to a large segment of the population, so um, I didn't know, and Urban later told me he didn't know. That there was any difference between HIV and AIDS, we all thought it was the same thing. So we thought, you know, he'd get, a, he got up there and said, you know, I'm going to beat this thing. And I was sitting, saying to someone who was sitting next to me, "This isn't beating the Boston Celtics. This is a, this is a deadly disease. He's going to die, and we're going to watch. Have to watch this in public. How painful is this going to be? And so there's a, a story, Lon. To back up a little bit, the, the Lakers were playing an exhibition game. They had just gotten into Salt Lake City. They were playing an exhibition game that night uh, before the start mm-hmm. of that season, and um, Irvin got a call from Lon Rosen, who was his agent, saying you, uh, that Dr. M- uh, the Lakers got a, a life insurance policy uh, on Irvin, and so he had to do a, a standard uh, physical, and then he hadn't got the results yet. So Dr. Melman, who was his doctor, called Lon and said, I need to see Irvin right now. He says, well, he's in, he's in Utah at a game. No, he's got to come back today. And he wouldn't tell him why. So uh, they booked him a flight. He flew home. Lon picked him up. And they went to Dr. Melman's office. And they told him that this result had come back positive uh, for, for HIV. And he was crushed. So he, he, he didn't want to go home and face Cookie, his wife. And mm-hmm. so he, he and Lon just went to a little fast food place and they were sitting outside eating. And it's, it's one in a million. This woman walks by and she's, she does the double take when she sees uh, magic and she comes over, she goes, Oh, magic Johnson. You don't, know, you know, I work for the age for the society. If there's any way, just a word from you, anything that you could tell people, it would help us. It would help raise money, anything you can do. And then they finished the conversation. she walks away and then, Magic turns to Lon and he says, "Now I'm one of them." <laughs> so, and after that press conference, Jerry Buss collapsed in Kareem's arms in the in, in, in backstage. It was just crushed. It was, it was just hard to believe. And it's it's you know it's funny because whenever you see uh, Magic, if you know him really well, which I do, he always wants a hug. That was just the standard thing. First time I saw him after that press conference, he had his arms out. And right through, in my head, I'm thinking for a second, can I do this? Because I, can I, can I hug this guy? And I did it, but it, it turned out that it's nothing like, well, like, the, like COVID. The only way you can get uh, AIDS from another person is through the exchange of bodily fluids. It doesn't, I did a story with a doctor one time who, who told me if two fighters could bang heads together and one of them has HIV and they could hold that, those heads together and you can't pass it on. It only comes through. The exchange of bodily fluids, which in a way it kind of it's sad that if, if Irvin had known that at the time, he could have continued to play. But no, no, people just didn't know enough about it. The good thing for him was that he came along this disease hit him just at the time when they were really starting to develop the kinds of drugs that could control uh, HIV. And he got the of course he got the best and he was able to he was able to take his, as long as he took his medication, which he still does. I mean, how, how weird is it? We thought this guy was going to die in, in his early 30s, and I bless him, he's still alive, and I'm so thankful, but he outlived Kobe. Who, who would have thought that? Mm-hmm.
0: So, so that's a good transition in terms of, let's call it the big three. We're going to keep Kareem off there for a moment, from, from Magic to Kobe to LeBron. So okay. Kobe comes in right out of high school. Again, not part of the city, but from Philadelphia. Uh, when did you realize that? He was perhaps the reincarnation of Magic Johnson, bringing Showtime back.
1: Well, Chick Hearn t- told me one time that um, he had talked to Jerry West. He called Jerry West, and West was was puffing and puffing when he was talking. And so uh, Chick says, "What? You, what do you, you it sound like? You've been you've been you've been exerting yourself quite a bit. What were you you doing jogging, or what were you doing?" He's "No, I just came from the greatest workout I've ever seen by any uh, player. This is a seventeen-year-old, so." Uh, That's, that was, that was a little, and then, you know, Jerry maneuvered things around so he could get Charlotte to draft Kobe and then trade him for a Lottie Divac. It was, and he became a Laker. So it was a different era. era. Yeah. Played a little differently,
0: but did Kobe see himself as standing on magic shoulders with he trying to identify himself as just Kobe himself? What made him different or the same as a magic?
1: Well, he 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 was he loved uh, you know he knew about of course knew about magic and Kareem and all that, but his mission that he set for himself was to equal Michael. He he wanted to be Michael because Michael was the guy at that point, and he wanted to do everything Michael did. He wanted to emulate him. He wanted mm-hmm. to learn from him. He wanted to beat him. So he, his his fixation was on Michael. Michael yeah. Jordan. Yeah, of course. And
0: what do you think his legacy was before he passed away in terms of his life and his career as a Laker? Better, worse, same? How did that compare?
1: Well, you you can, you know, you can make the argument that he's right there. He won five titles the same as as the Showtime Lakers. Um he, he um obviously he was unparalleled as a as a shooter, as a player, as an all-around as a, a dynamic guy who who, uh, who's, who wanted to be the Black Mamba, the guy who was mean and, and you know, and I'll, I'll tell you the story um, to show you. that There's another side to Kobe, which I really liked and, and I got to know, and, and most people don't know it because he didn't I the you that
0: story. I want to share the picture right here. This okay. is a picture of Joey and Kobe, and maybe you can share that story of right. who Black Mamba was off the court that we didn't really see.
1: Okay, so Joey Joey was the son of a woman, uh, Linda Heredero, who my wife worked with, and and unfortunately Joey uh, got terminal cancer in, in his early uh, 21, 22, and he was obsessed with Kobe, and he worked hard on his medication and his uh, to taking all all the uh, all the uh, medication and all the work he did um, based on Kobe's work ethic, and so his dream in life was was to meet Kobe Bryant, and um, so, uh, it, Linda asked Anato asked me if there's any way he could. Now, now Kobe did a lot of charity work, but he didn't. He didn't want anyone to know about it. He thought it was it should be private. And so, and he had a rule too that um, he would do all the, the Make a Wish and all, all this, all the the charity events that he could attend. But he never did anything in the playoffs because to him, the playoffs was separate. He had to concentrate. He he, he just t- took time out from charity work during the playoffs. So I went to him and I asked him. If he'd make an exception for this kid. By that point, Joey had already had a leg amputated. He was—he uh, uh, didn't. Have, I It was terminal. He had a terminal case of cancer. And Kobe said, "Yeah, he'd do it." And so uh, the the Lakers got Joey and his family uh, uh, parking passes and tickets. And and when the game was over, it was a playoff game. Uh, we all went down in this uh, b- at the bottom of Staples Center and waited. And when Kobe was done, he came in. And immediately he, inter- he re- interacted with Joey. It was like they'd been best friends. Hey, where'd you sit tonight? I sat there when I was a kid, on and on and on. And Joey, Joey had had a 106 degree fever the day before. Mm-hmm. And he told the doctor he was going anyway. So the doctor said, well, then you have to get this signed from me if you, if, if I'm going to let you go. So he kind of apologized to Kobe. You know, I'm sorry. I I um I brought all this stuff. And Kobe said, don't worry about it. Once I start signing, I can't stop. So he signed everything. Then Kobe said, all right, everybody up, pictures. So he took pictures with everybody. And so when it was done, he was walking out the door and I went to shake his hand. And he said to me, I don't want to see this anywhere. I don't want you to write about it. I don't want to see it that you on TV talking about it. What well, I do what I do because not for a pat on the back. I do it because it's the right thing to do. If you need anything ever like this again, you come to me privately, but no one needs to know that I do this. And so I honored that for a long time until Kobe agreed." Uh, we had a reunion later on but um unfortunately t- t- 3 weeks later J- Joey then passed away but um but that was Kobe that was a Kobe that n- nobody saw and that was the Kobe I knew and I and that's why you know he was just he was really a wonderful person I mean he had his black mamba uh, masky war when he was when he was playing but but there was another side to him that he he just kind of kept quiet Okay.
0: Uh, video see an interview
1: with Steve Springer and Kobe Bryant. Yes, the beyond. What are you miss most about being around here at Staples Center on the road? You know, like outside of the game, it's it's always relationships and the camaraderie with teammates, and even dealing with the media to a certain extent. You know, because that's all part of it, right? But nothing, no, nothing supersedes the game. I mean, I grew up here. You know, and a lot of the, the, the people that work here actually came from the forum. They've watched me grow up from 17 years old till now. Is there a sadness, a trace of sadness in, in the fact that it's coming to an end? No. No. It's, it's uh, I'm thankful. I'm not sad at all. I'm not sad at all. I mean, there's, there's, I left no stone unturned. I mean, I gave everything to the game, you know, and for 20 years in the NBA and then more before that.
0: Looking back on that interview, knowing that he's not with us now, uh, take us back to that moment saying, I left no stone unturned. I think it's a, actually, it's a beautiful Yisker sermon, right? I left no stone unturned. Right, uh, right. Your thoughts on that?
1: Well, it still hurts. I mean, it was so, I mean, it, any accidents is unnecessary, but this one was just so unnecessary. And, and I think people saw another side of Kobe But his life after, you know, I'll tell you, he he was, um, I I wrote a book with Karan Butler and supposedly it's going to be made into a movie. Mark Wahlberg's already committed to it. So when I when I saw Kobe after that, he says, hey, congratulations uh, on the movie. You're going to win an Oscar. And I said, Kobe, it's a sports movie. I said, he says to me, no, whatever you do, you go for the top. If you're a basketball player, you go for a championship. And if you make a movie, you go to make an Oscar. And ironically, Kobe won an Oscar for his for his basketball short that he did. So I mean that other side of him that came out after he quit playing and all and all the potential he had ahead of him, that makes it was sad enough, but that even made it sadder.
0: So there's an obvious trust between you and Kobe, just like you and Magic. But you said Kobe's living in a different era. How did you gain that trust with Kobe? Um, in the way that you could sit down and speak like that freely with him.
1: Well, he, he, he you know, I was always around and he knew, you know, who I was and what I did. And so um, we just, we just, we just got along. Well. well, and my son, Alan, who's now in the business, uh-huh. Alan's uh, working for Sports Illustrated. He, he's had had his own relationship with Kobe and uh, it was kind of an, a family affair. Kobe did a funny video for us right before Alan's marriage to, to Lauren, which we showed at the rehearsal dinner. So that, he, would, he would always do those little things. I mean, it, it was I never had any trouble approaching him. He actually wrote the foreword for me for, for Quran's book. So uh.
0: let's talk about Quran's book for a moment. Tough juice. Uh, I'm a Syracuse guy, so it was hard to read a Yukon uh, success story. But Quran is an amazing story. And it's Rabbi on the Sidelines, intersection of sports and faith. Let's talk about Quran Butler, his story, and his faith story. You were gracious enough to connect uh, Quran to Sinai Temple here, and he came to Sinai Temple basketball camp. Uh, highlight of our camp over the last couple of years um but karan butler grows up in milwaukee not the same story as a more not not as stable of a family as a kobe as a magic johnson right uh how does karan take his story there and why did you find it so he didn't play for the lakers but you found it fascinating that you wanted to take his story on to tell it what's what's karan what's so special about karan in that moment
1: of faith that he has well, actually, Quran Quran played for the Lakers for one year. So uh, right, he, right, right. Sorry. Yeah. So, um, no, I mean, it was an incredible story. He grew up in total poverty. Um, he was a drug dealer at the at the age of, of eleven. I mean, he he had uh, there was there was the uh, there was a group that, that, that was selling selling drugs, and they did it in the basement of his house. And they tossed him what they called crumbs, and he started to put these in little blue bags. And he had a he had a paper route. So he'd, he'd get up at five in the morning, wrap his papers. Put, he had a little red wagon. He he put all and he put these little bags of of cocaine, uh, crack cocaine in the in the wagon. And on top of that, he put the layer of papers. And then he'd walk down the street. He would toss a paper, toss a paper. Someone would come over, ask for a little bag. Before he charged forty dollars uh, for a bag of, of crack cocaine, he sold that. Then he went back, tossing papers. It was unbelievable. And and uh, he was making four hundred dollars a day as an eleven year old. And and then he got you know he grew up grew up and he got in, into gangs and um, he was the police were always after him and it was it was arrested like something like fifteen times, uh, but then um, he, at, he went he wound up in solitary confinement in a juvenile facility and then um, when he got out his mother shipped him away to the east coast where he went to a prep school. Wound up going to Yukon, became a, a star there, and wound up in the fir- a first round draft choice, picked by the Miami Heat. and And he now lives near me here in Walnut Acres uh, in the San Fernando Valley, and um, got three great daughters, great wife, wonderful family, and all that's. And now he goes back to Racine, Wisconsin, which is the ghetto where where he uh, grew up, and he now. Put- He now drives around in the patrol car with the guys who are always arresting him, trying to keep the peace in town and does all these charity events and gives away bicycles and coats in the winter. He's an amazing guy. He really is. So telling his story (sighs) is a way of
0: changing things, changing children, changing communities. Is there a story or two that you have written over the years that you realize that when you wrote these words on paper or, let's say, on a screen nowadays – that this was going to make not just reporting an event or reporting a game, but this was, had the ability to change something, not just in sports, but outside of the world of sports as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, you, you have an, ama- you have an, uh, an amazing um, platform, but you also have an amazing responsibility when you write. And especially back in the day when everybody bought the newspaper, the LA Times on Sunday had over a million readers, which they figure three to five people read a newspaper. So you've got an audience of five million people one of the things i did after after the riots here in the 90s uh the Watts riots i sat out with, with magic and we we did a he did a i did a q and a with him in which he started talking about about building up the black neighborhoods about bringing in industry about bringing in stores and and jobs and that story got got a great acclaim uh, i i did a story uh, i we i was part of a group we broke down a a gambling operation but which based on my story, the FBI interceded and shut this group down. But I'll tell you, I learned that, that, um, you can have an influence in so many different ways. And I'll I'll tell you a real quick story. But, um, so I was covering the Dodgers one night and I just seen the movie saving private Ryan, which I'm sure you remember about world war, world war two. And, um, so the PR guy comes by and says to me that, uh, this guy, this guy has terminal cancer. He was, he was, he was in the landing at, at, at Normandy, and he was dying. And he'd spent Eric Carroll's, who was his favorite Dodger, it spent forty five minutes with him. If you want to put a note in, in your story, so I was sitting there thinking, you know, this guy may have saved my life before I was even born. I mean, if, if D Day doesn't doesn't happen, isn't successful, you know, we might have lost the war. The uh, the Nazis might have gotten the, the bomb before us, and so I. What I did probably wasn't professional, but I, I was, I just did it. You know, I, I, I said, I've, you've written thousands of stories, sports stories. You know, you always put the, in the lead, the score and all that, you know, mess around with that. But I, I didn't do that. I, I, I can't remember his name right now, but I used his name at the, at the, to lead off the story at the top of the sports page. Joe Jones is a big, is a happy man tonight, even though his Dodgers lost because he's got to spend 45 minutes with his favorite mm-hmm. player. And, um, and I know. See, back then, before the internet, there was only one edition of the paper, and our deadline was 10:30. And I, when you're covering the Dodgers, you're the last thing in the paper, and you've got that they have no time to do anything other than look for for grammatical errors or misspellings. So I knew it was going to have to run. They may not like it, and they may talk to me about it tomorrow. But tonight, they're going to have to run this. So I wrote wrote it like that, and, and you know, it, it was fine. And then, so uh, about two weeks later, I got a call. From a woman, she says, "I'm Barbara Smith. Um, you wrote about my father. I want to let you know he passed away last night." And I said, "Well, I'm sorry." She says, "Don't be sorry. What you did, our family will never forget. He had that paper right by his his hospital bed, and everybody who came in, he showed it to them. And um, you made the last two weeks of his life so so enjoyable. And so I, I realized that, that you know you can have such an impact just with one person. But and funny thing is, I was." I was in the Dodger locker room after that. And Eric Carroll says, hey, I saw your story. I says, yeah, well, you know, I just saw Saving Private Ryan. And Eric says, I just saw Saving Private Ryan, too. That's why I spent 45 minutes with him. So wow. we did about it, that we'd both been so affected by this guy that we'd, we'd each done in our own way. We'd each kind of try to help him in his final days.
0: So you covered Steelers. all the big L.A. teams, the Lakers, the Kings, um, the Dodgers, UCLA basketball, but also US, you covered
1: USC football Olympics, football,
0: Olympics, everything. You've covered it. What? And now, Alan, your son, does an amazing job. Uh, Alan's right. going to be our next guest. But, of course, we bring in our uh, elders before our children. So that's why you got the first call. <laughs> um, but the boxing you've also covered. And one of the people you've covered was actually uh, Dimitri Salita who is a right. Russian Jew. Right. Uh, you told me an amazing faith story about he him combined, actually two amazing faith stories. Tell us about a Saturday night bout with him and then also maybe uh, how he got into uh, one of the boxing matches that he didn't really have a ticket to.
1: Yeah, so so Dmitri was born in what was then the Soviet Union and he knew he was not allowed, he was not exposed to Judaism whatsoever. And then uh, he came to America and uh, his mother passed away And he wanted to, uh, he he understood that there was a a Kaddish and a a way to to memorialize her. And so he went to services at at a Kabbad in New York. He was living in New York. He went to a a Kabbad there and he never left. And he became became Orthodox. He went from not even knowing what Judaism was to becoming Orthodox. And um, so I'll tell you the one story first is that he, um, so one night I was going into, I was covering a fight at Madison Square Garden. And I was walking in, and there I see I see Dimitri standing off to the side, and I said, "Dimitri, you coming in the fight tonight?" And yeah, he had his head down. He was he was kind of naive at that point. He didn't really understand New York quite. He's like, "I can't." I I said, "Oh, you don't have a ticket?" He said, "Well, actually, I bought a ticket on the street from someone, and it turned out to be a phony ticket, and now I can't get in." I oh, come on, you're not going to stand out here. So I came to the door and I said, "You know, I have my credential, and I said this is a fighter. He needs to come in too." And and the guy looks at him, the bouncer looks at him, and he says, um, well, I know, I know he's not going to cause cause me problems. I said, he's an Orthodox Jew. He's not going <laughs> to cause you any problems. Let him in. So he, he got in that, that way. But um, after he became a professional fighter, we I think it was the MGM Grand. We were in Vegas. Uh, it was a Saturday morning, and somebody called me. We're staying in the same hotel, the MGM, of course. And he said, um, could you come up to, to Dimitri's room? At 9 o'clock, we, we need a minion to, to do the Shabbos morning s- services. So, I mean, that's the kind of relationship I had with him. Um, and, and But he he he, had, he would fight on Saturdays on Shabbos, but he wouldn't fight until normally the, the he was a, a, just starting out his boxing career. And those guys fight early. And then the, the big fights take place 8, 9 o'clock at night. But in Dimitri's case, he, he would only fight after the sun went down. So... Um, they they allowed him to fight later on the card. So he was in the locker room um, waiting to fight, and it was the, the sun had already set, so he decided to do with his, his manager, trainer-slash-rabbi, um, to do a Havdalah service. And so, you know, the light like, the candles, do everything. And the other fighters are standing around watching. And so one of the other fighters, I think, lost his fight, and he comes in the locker room, and he says to to uh, Dimitri, could you teach me how to do that thing with a candle, where it helps you win? Because Dimitri won his fight. He says, "Could you teach me that thing with a candle, that that, that helps you win the fight?" And and so, the, in the minds of these other fighters, lighting that candle and doing the was the way to win a fight. So I thought that was pretty funny.
0: Kodesh lechol to separate the uh, sacred from the uh, from the ordinary.
1: The, the yeah. other, the other. Well, let me one, one yeah. other real quick uh, story about um, faith and and sports. So one one year, um, there was a fight that was happening during during Pesach, uh, one of the first two days in Pesach, and so um, so many people, uh, not a lot, not a lot of, not a lot of fighters, but so many people around boxing promoters, publicists, writers are Jewish. So actually, Alan and I worked on this together. I, I we we came up with this idea because you know you, you after the fight, you do the interviews, you do all the stuff, and by midnight. Everybody would be free. We spread the word. We wanted to have a seder at midnight in the MGM grant. We got the uh, the the uh, the kitchen. The, the cooks at the MGM cooked us uh, uh, everything. You know, uh, chicken soup and chopped liver and everything. We had a real good turnout. at in a ballroom, we got we got. I I forgot how we got the haggadahs, but we did. And we had a a um, one of my more memorable uh, most memorable uh, Seders. It was my wife came with my daughter. And, Alan was already there working and we got a full table and we had a Seder from t- from midnight to 2 a.m. Great Seder. So,
0: so when so is,
1: is there thing in sports? sports? How would you answer would you that? It, well, there's, there's, uh, well, it's it's obvious every, every every player scores a touchdown. The first thing he does is look, look up to the heavens. I mean, well, whatever your religion, everybody, you know, athletes as a, as a rule are very superstitious. And mm-hmm. religion is a big part of, of what they they have to wear. You know, they're, they're crazy. and They have to eat the same food at the same time if they win. And if they, uh, Rogi Bashan, who used to be the goaltender for the Kings, he would, if he lost a game, he would drive a, a different way home than he, than normal. And so someone said, "We must have tried every street in L.A. because he lost a lot of games." But anyway, they they you know they each, in each faith, they faith is a part, and they they believe that you know I mean it gets ridiculous when they talk about God's rooting for our team versus the other team. That's a, that's a little far out. But no, they're all you know their faith is all through uh, sports for sure.
0: And then you've done some pretty crazy stories too outside of the major sports world one is captain phil harris on your time on a fishing boat i believe tell us that story and how how do you find these people to tell these stories and why was that story important to tell
1: well you know it's it's from a show called the deadliest catch which is on the discovery channel and and to tell you the truth i I had never even never even heard of it um (laughs) and and so they called me um and asked me if I'd be interested in doing this this book on Captain Phil Harris who had who had passed away but he was he was one of the most colorful characters um in, in the I mean these people are all crazy it's the most dangerous one of the most dangerous jobs in the world crab fishing in the Bear, in the Bering Sea and um over a period i forgot that when i did the book i had the number something like 10 years 27 fishermen had died i mean you're dealing in 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 water that's 55 below zero we can get hypothermia you can there's ice there's uh, it's just incredibly dangerous and so um i asked alan i said they want me to do this book on delhi's Catch?" and alan said dad you have no idea how popular the show is it's the biggest thing uh, on tv so i did the book and i went up to alaska i went to kodiak island i went i got on that fishing boat i uh i was in anchorage for a while and uh these guys are all nuts, but they're fascinating characters. And I, I, even though it was crabs, I've never I don't I've never eaten crab, but I, I, I enjoyed doing the doing the uh, the book. It was it was the only book I've really done that had nothing to do with sports. But it, you know, it's it's a lot of fun. And, and in a way, when you write about something that you don't know about and you have to learn, you relate to the audience, and it's actually a good thing. You know, I, I uh, when I got hired when I got um, assigned to cover the Kings, I'd never seen a hockey game in person. And so, but the thing is, when you write, uh, you write about people, people are people, whatever they're, at. you can learn the rules, but it's, you know, Wayne Gretzky is is a fascinating character. It doesn't matter that I didn't, at the beginning, didn't know anything about his game. I, I just knew that he was worth, you know, learning about, so.
0: I know after the <laughs> captured Bill Harris, we saved you the go aliyah, which you uh, came back quickly and uh, said a nice Aliyah for your health return from Alaska. Oh, right, right, <laughs> right. Um, I love how you say you're, you talk, it's not about the sports. It's about the person. Um, and two things. First, I actually want to share something that most people don't know yeah. about you and your advocacy for the special needs world. Um, maybe tell who are you Steve Springer as a person outside the sports world and why special needs is so important, not just to you, but to obviously me and our community as well.
1: Well, you know, and, uh, obviously my, my daughter was born with cerebral palsy and, uh, she was actually the, the poster child national poster child for 10 years. Um, uh, she was in movies and TV shows, and she helped raise a lot of money. And uh, I became uh, totally uh, uh, involved in the in the uh, handicapped community. And Dina has had an amazing life. She uh, she was affected physically, but not at all mentally. Actually, she's a, she's a genius with her the way she handles numbers. And um, she went to college. She graduated from college. She uh, she got married to someone who also has cerebral palsy, Daniel Garcia. Um, they have a wonderful child who's, if I might say, it, an artist, and I don't say that lightly, but he he really is at Brandon, and um, and so it's it's an incredible community, and the stories in that community, and what what those what the people who are disabled in one way or another have to go through, to and and you know yourself through in through your own family, it's it's uh, it's very inspirational, and uh, that's a side of my life that I'm I'm glad I, I have away from sports. And um uh, and Dean Dina's now got a great job. uh run, we're working with Access Services and uh she's an amazing person. Well, I'm proud to have be Daniel. I
0: you know, am proud yeah, to have uh, Brandon's preschool that's rabbi right,
1: that's when he started right.
0: <laughs> scribbling before he did some uh, amazing artwork and just Oh, I uh, thought
1: you taught him how to do that.
0: Yeah, no, I, I can barely sign my name, but I can play a couple <laughs> songs on the keyboard. Um and that connection between sports and faith and within that world of hope and inspiration. I think, I mean, that, that is that is your story. And that's our story as well. You were named part of the Jewish sports hall of fame in Southern California. What does that mean to you representing not just the sports world, but also the faith role on a larger level?
1: Oh, it was a, it was a wonderful tribute. You know, all the the famous names that are, that are in that, in that hall of fame. And, uh, um, it, it's an, it was a, it's, it is a real honor just to say that that's on my resume and I'm, uh, I'm really, and I, I'm proud, also, not not because not just it's a sports award, but it's it, it represents Judaism, which is which is more important to me than sports. So um, I'm, so I'm glad. Been, I'm glad about there's that. There's been a lot of change in the world,
0: specifically the sports world, over the time that you started coming in with Showtime till today. What has been that change, and what do you see uh, the change, either for the good or the not so good, uh, coming forward in the sports world that will predict the future?
1: Well, I think there's there's good and bad. I I think I, I'm obviously, if I was a professional athlete, I'd be thrilled with the money. I mean, it's uh, it's so much different now. And but in a way, it's it's created, as I said before, it's these gaps between the players and everybody else because they're just on a totally different financial plane. Um, you know, was a Walter O'Malley, one time before free agency came along, um, players in baseball were tied to their club, and then free agency was coming along and came along after Sandy Koufax had retired, but um, uh, Walter O'Malley, who was then the owner, was asked, what what would you have had to pay Sandy Koufax if he was a free agent? And O'Malley said, Sandy and I would have been partners. <laughs> so, but, so that, the, the money is just, I mean, it's, it's, it's created a, a, an inability for many people to even afford going to games. It's, mm-hmm. it's crea- and, it, and it's it's great for the players. I mean, I don't begrudge them if, if they didn't get the money, the owners would get it. It's not like they're going to hand it out to the poor, but the plus side is that a lot of, of athletes like LeBron James and others, um, have gotten involved in social issues, have gotten involved in battling racism, have gotten involved in voter registration have, have spoken out, you know, one of the, uh, Right-wing uh, conservative hosts on Fox and, and said that, that LeBron ought to just mm-hmm. shut up and dribble, and and to his credit, he took that that line, that snarly line, and and made a show out of it called "Shut Up and Dribble," and had all these people on and spoke out against uh, police brutality and and racism and, and you know I, I remember back um, why well, did I shouldn't say I remember I wasn't working then but I, I was doing a book on the Lakers and I found that. That um, Because a lot of players back in that era, African-American players, they could play after Jackie Robinson came along, but they couldn't stay in the same hotels. They couldn't stay in the same, eat in the same restaurants. And so they were on an exhibition tour, the Lakers were, through the South. And they came to a town where where, uh, Elgin Baylor wasn't allowed to stay in the same hotel with his teammates. So he announced he wasn't going to play. And the promoters, because on those barnstorming trips before the season starts, those games... Mean life or death to these small towns, and so the the the, all, the city fathers all got together. They were frantic, and they changed the rules and allowed him to stay just that one night. He could stay in the hotel, and so he played the game. So, I mean, there, there's been a lot, uh, and and in those days, the players really didn't didn't have any uh, platform to speak out against that kind of stuff, except what Elgin did. But nowadays, I think it's great that they all do speak out. They should. I mean, they're citizens. They're human beings. They have things that they they see are unfair, and now they talk about
0: it. And so uh, this morning, you have a Kofax story, a Jewish Kofax Dodger story for us.
1: Uh, which 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 one? Which one? Ooh, I well, like oh, oh, I want Yom Kippur. Yeah, sure. Well, I, the great line from that. So Sandy Kofax, everybody knows, didn't didn't um, didn't pitch on in 1965 on the fir- in the first game of the World Series because it was a y- Yom Kippur and. Um, so they put Don, Dry- Don Drysdale was, was the number two guy. So he pitched and he got bombed. He was blown out like by a fourth or fifth inning. He'd given up five runs and Walter Alston, the manager came out to take the ball from him and Drysdale said to him, right about now, I'm guessing you probably wish I was Jewish too. <laughs> that was a great line, but, and, uh, uh but and- yeah, I could tell you a real quick a story about Yeah, Please. Okay. So I'm, I'm working for the Dodgers and, um, I'm a kid. I'm 18, 19 years old. And I got interviews with Sandy Koufax, who I, whose poster is on my bedroom wall, you know, and I'm no normally I didn't get nervous interviewing athletes, but that time I was nervous. So I, I had a tape recorder and I went up to him and I asked him if I could interview him and never spoken to him. And he says, uh, yeah, sure. And so I start to do the interview and I'm going to say an older guy came running around the corner. When, when I'm 18, anybody over 30 is older, but, um, uh, and he says, Sandy, I'm, I'm from the AP, I'm the, the blah, 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 I need, to, I need an interview, and, and and I can't say anything, I'm, I'm basically a kid. And he says, um, just a minute, I'm talking to this young man here, when I'm done with him, I'll talk to you. He says, but I'm on deadline, I'm not, and Sandy says, I don't care if this kid's only going to play this tape for his parents, and your story's going to go to a million people. I said i talked to him first, and I'm going to talk to him first. And I'm like, yes! <laughs> so, that was kind of cool, but...
0: No, but I think that tells a larger right. story of the human touch of what we don't see. Right, you right. Don't write that right. story, but you feel that story, and today you tell that story because it meant right. something to you. Just like Eric right. Caros and the Private Ryan, and all the stories that you share. Right, Steve, it is a pleasure i know this was a long time coming um it's always been a pleasure to dive in with you i missed our yom kippur uh, kol Nindrei walks home together yeah yeah um, but i know over the years we have stayed in contact and i know all of the stories that you have told over the years have made such a difference not just to your audience but to uh the sports world to the jewish world and to the, uh, to the world at large steve springer los angeles lakers historian los angeles times journalist member of the jewish sports hall of fame but as we like to say here on rabbi on the sidelines a good old mensch steve it's good to see you and thanks so much for joining us thank you so much everybody thank thank
1: you thank you